Welcome back to the Marvel Movie Minute, a daily podcast in which we explore the films of the Marvel Cinematic Universe one minute at a time. In this, our fifth season, we are looking at Joe Johnston's 2011 film, Captain America, The First Avenger. I'm Andy Nelson from the Next Real Film Podcast. And I'm Pete Wright. And Andy, is a montage of just Schmidt a schmittage? We'll talk about that here in a moment, because we are talking about Minute 26, which begins with many people forgetting and ends with a great power hidden in the earth. Joining us on the show today, back from last season, and here with us all week, Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg. Welcome, Doc. Hi. Thanks so much for having me back. It's always a joy. Well, it's going to be a fun uh, week to talk about everything going on Um uh, with everything that we have here, we're we're starting the scene back in the barracks. Uh, we are here in the little Quonset hut with uh, we've got Steve and we've got Erskine, and we came in mid kind of uh, story. You know, Steve had asked the question, "Why me?" And this is <laughs> Erskine Erskine's real roundabout way of getting to it. Let's uh, let's talk about a little bit this scene and uh, perhaps like uh, you know, what are your what's your impression of of the way that he goes about. Uh, telling this story here. I got two things I can lead off with right away. One that I just want to get in because it's a perfect opportunity at the beginning of this scene to say it, which is a pet peeve I always have with this movie. We know, and, and I love this movie, but we know for a fact that one of the things they did was at the best that they could deliberately obscure the use of the swastika in the film because they quote unquote didn't want to offend people. <laughs> oh, I'm Jewish oh, in case no. anybody hasn't figured out. Oh, that stings. And it's like if you're going to do Nazis, do Nazis. Yeah. You know, that's that that is the most ridiculous thing. I remember reading that time and thinking it's like who are you going to offend? The other Nazis? <laughs> it's yeah. like show evil. It's a and movie that exists about punching Nazis, literal punching yes. of Nazis literally his first appearance is punching Hitler in the face. And then they do that, you know? So it's like, so that part was weird. So actually this is one of the only moments in the movie where you see a swastika, you see that flag behind Schmidt during the montage bit. That's one of the only times in the film you actually see it. And it's fleeting when they're wearing them on their armbands, for instance, you'll notice they go to great lengths to shoot them from angles that don't show the swastika on their arm. As if they're kind of spare yeah. the feelings of the Nazis. But anyway. Well, and even but, on his outfit, it's like it's it's almost like the pre Hydra logo when well, you see kind of yeah. the thing. It's like it's just a skull on his on, yeah. on his hat. So And I mean, going back to the beginning, the whole invention of Hydra was like a neat way, even in the comic book days, of sidestepping the actual Nazis and saying, Okay, but we're not doing that, we're doing Hydra and that's you know, which has always been a part of it. Yeah. But the other thing I will say is this is some of the most deft and and beautifully handled like info dumping exposition kind of stuff. And it all comes down to the reason why I picked these minutes I want to do with you, which is that Stanley Tucci is a global treasure and he is <laughs> a joy in, in everything. And his performance here rises so far above all the cliches that his character represents that it's just uh it's magical to watch him and there's such emotion and heart in his performance that he does a beautiful job here of laying out the background of everything you don't feel like you're getting exposition like the standard kind of thing it, yeah it doesn't come in feeling like an exposition dump it actually uh 
plays pretty nicely, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting, too, because we have this character who is, you know, we have ripe opportunity for giving us the exhibition dump. But the fact that it's associated with a a particularly sort of pedestrian like conversation, a toast between guys. So booze, potentially, you know, we we see how that plays out in the coming minutes. But we, it's guys telling a story over booze and it grounds <laughs> what is otherwise a horrific bit of history and a schmittage uh, in um, this this really sort of of the people kind of experience for us. And I think that makes it it's super approachable. It makes horror kind of approachable. And it's also part of a dynamic that also and <laughs> I, I'm going to try not to lean into negativity too much, but I mean, that's just the points that are occurring to me. It's also, unfortunately, part of a trap that the Marvel movies fell into very quickly and have arguably never gotten back out of, which is that most Marvel films are father-son stories <laughs> and yeah. characters with daddy issues. Yeah. <laughs> and this scene, though, is a tip like he is his surrogate father. He's he's Erskine has become the father figure. Steve doesn't have one around. And suddenly there's this elder man who's telling him, you know, all this stuff and becoming like a mentor for a very brief period of time. So there's that kind of dynamic. And that's the kind of thing that we see recur a lot in in these films. This, I feel, is a particularly nice one just because they're so good together. It's interesting, though, that like, I mean, because, you know, it sounds like his father basically died the year he was born. And so Mm -hmm. he's never had a father in his life. So it's interesting that uh, there's never been a setup in the story, as far as I know, to have another person in his life as kind of a father figure. So it's uh, it's interesting that this is the first one, really, that he's had around. Mm hmm. You know, looking at uh, flashbacks in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, I was trying to think, because at first I'm like, is this is this the first flashback? And I'm like, oh, no, no, wait, there's the, I guess you could call it the uh, flashback, the opening uh, credits for The Incredible Hulk, which kind of shows Bruce trans- hit that first transformation. And Odin has that kind of, uh, you know, he's talking to Loki about him as a baby. And so there were a few. Are there any others yeah. that I'm forgetting in the in the other films or... Because now we're up to the point where we're 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 coming to the end of phase one, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, I can't think of anything else other than that. I think this is a very artfully done one too. Yeah. I also wanted to throw out just just by happenstance in the last two nights, I watched um, as we're recording. This was new that Disney Plus was uh, debuting a new documentary about ILM called Light and Magic. Light and Magic, sure. Um, I watched that whole run in two nights and it was fantastic, but it was fascinating to me to see more about Joe Johnston's journey from ILM and visual effects to becoming a director. And and then I was thinking, oh, we're going to be talking about his work on Captain America. And he like, he'd come a long way at this point, but it's also really something when you have a director who knows how to handle visual effects well and understands the requirements. And then also I'm thinking, this is a man who in one of his first directorial gigs did The Rocketeer, so he was a perfect choice for this kind of story. And also period, you know, heroic drama. He's really great for that. Uh, So it's interesting anyway, seeing, you know, this is the guy helming Cap's first big adventure. There's been a lot of talk lately about, there was a, you know, um, uh, a story in I think it was Variety recently, um, where they it's a it's a piece where they you know anonymously anonymously interview people who are working 
um, in the industry. And it happened to be a person who worked in uh, computer graphics and was talking about uh, working with Marvel and how challenging it is with the Marvel structure because Mar Marvel really uh, kind of abuses the visual effects companies and uh, is such a juggernaut that, you know, they kind of bend to their will uh, and end up really pushing all of the, the people who are doing the visual effects to work extra hard and not getting uh, paid fairly for it. Uh, the reason I'm bringing this up is because one of the things that they talk about is the fact that there's this new structure that Marvel has. I mean, it's not new really for them at this point, but they they started bringing on uh, directors who were more coming from the independent world or who hadn't helmed these big action stories, didn't really have a background in visual effects. And because of that, they have pushed up a lot of the pre-production elements of the visual effects to make it look a lot better so that these new directors have a better understanding of what they're actually looking at. And by doing so, it actually is making it cost more, take longer, et cetera, et cetera. The, the, one of the points of the story is that they would be better served and it would help the visual effects world if Marvel was bringing on directors who had a better handle uh, in the world of visual effects who had helmed these bigger projects and had that understanding. And I think that when you see what uh, Joe Johnston does in the film, I think he does have that sense. I mean, he came from the world of visual effects. And, and so now that you're, you're seeing somebody like him doing it, uh, I mean, I, you know, John Favreau, I think certainly has proven himself to be somebody who does understand that. I mean, you look at what he's been doing with the Mandalorian I and mean, he's somebody who seems to be always pushing to improve technology. And, um, and, but I, I think it'll be interesting to kind of look at that as we go through, um, you know, how are these directors and how are the visual effects, uh, you know, is there signs that this director may not have had as good a handle on it as some others? And so, um, uh, yeah, so I, I, I'm very happy with what Joe Johnston does in this film. Do you have a sense of of kind of his place as a director and kind of what he's bringing uh, with the visual effects to the film? Well, I will say that I think he's often overlooked, but not not in like a showy way. And I don't I don't mean this negatively at all. But I don't feel that you can see a film of his and say, "Oh, that's a Joe Johnston film." Yeah, he doesn't have a. Good, I don't big think stamp. he has a style particularly, yeah. or like a a shot or a look that's like, "Oh, okay, that's uh, like." You watch a movie by Sam Raimi, for instance, or Tim Burton, or even Spielberg, and there's like there's certain shots, there's certain looks where you go, well, and have it'd be, you'd be hard pressed not to think that's them, or nowadays somebody who's aping them, but still. But Johnston just seems like the kind of guy who gets the job done and tells the story, and I don't think that's a bad thing at all. And sometimes I think that's just what you want. And in the case of Captain America, I always loved this one because it felt right felt like this is the version of this character I would have wanted to see on the screen and do the World War II stuff first. And, do, and it may not have like incredibly flashy stuff. Um, although if I think of some, I could probably think of a few things, but I think that he was great for it. He, he tells the story wonderfully and, and it's structured very well. And I think he's often forgotten as, you know, I think people like the showier, flashier stuff sometimes and forget that sometimes a good director just disappears into a story and lets the story happen. 
Well, and the fact that Joe Johnston also happens to have such a feel for the period that the the flashy stuff is flashy specifically because of his intention to keep it feeling like the era in which he's making the movie. And I, I think that is a that's a nod and a consistency between some of his films of the era. You would talk about Rocketeer for sure. Like the the most interesting sort of visual effects are the visual effects that feel like you know, they, they don't feel out of context of a big movie, but they also don't feel out of context from the period. And that's a that's a gift. That's an eye. Yeah. He's, well, he is. I mean, very much. I mean, there may not be a style, but he certainly gravitates to um, period and uh, kind of that the fantastical in the real world. You know, I mean, I, I don't think he's directed anything that wouldn't be considered a genre film. Um you know, I mean, October Sky might be more just kind of a, a biopic, but again, specifically for him, something that he seems very uh, drawn to, which is kind of the the space race era, you know. And, and so I think that when you look at his his work, I, I think that it is fairly, um, you know, he does keep himself behind the scenes, so to speak, as, as you're looking at it. It doesn't it doesn't scream. This is a Joe Johnston film, but he's a very um, effective storyteller in how he does craft the, the stories that he likes to tell. And it's not too big a segue to, like, get back to the, the minute itself. This scene, I feel, is a great example of someone who understands the balance between visual effects and character and story. And this is a scene where it's working. So for example, because I haven't been here to talk about other parts of it, the, the, um, the shrinking of Chris Evans for his Steve Rogers, you know, segment. Um, I think in retrospect, it's hard to believe how long ago this movie is now in retrospect. When you go back, there are parts of it that I don't think work as well. It's it's a little over the top, I think, in what they did with him. It's almost too much. Um, one might almost say comical or cartoonish, but you know. <laughs> but I but depending, right? This scene has low lighting. It's just the two shot, you know, with the two of them talking. It's a quiet little scene. It looks good because it fits and is also not a lot of cues to show you something looks off. He just looks like there are other shots, like a shot with him and Haley Atwell in the car. I think they're a little off, but this one, it looks good. And I think it's an example of of showing how you can utilize, you know, cutting edge effects, but just to serve the story and the character. And, and it all works really well. I, I do have to say there is a there is a a soldier that walks back behind the window and the window doesn't I'm I'm drawn to assume there's no window or soldier there that that was put in afterward. Uh, but there is a soldier that walks by the window and he doesn't walk by the second window. I swear we should see him come out the window. Yeah, I have notes for every one of these minutes about the disappearing soldiers. There's a disappearing soldier and it makes me crazy. No, that's uh, that is a thing. There are uh, there are soldiers um, at about twenty seconds, at about forty eight seconds, and yeah. they seem to pass one window and never actually make it to the next window. Um, I like to think that maybe the building behind them has a door that happens to yeah. be between the windows. I don't know. Maybe it was like an early clue to like the universe starting to break down that will now get paid off in the multiverse saga. <laughs> That's right. That's right. The entire right. next film takes place in the opposite building, right? It's yeah. just, yeah. All the soldiers who played those soldiers <laughs> right. in the background are going to show up. They're all there. 
I, I want to ask a question and see what you two think about this, because as as we start getting this story told by uh, Dr. Erskine about uh, Schmidt, uh, you know, he's kind of basically filling in this backstory for Steve. So Steve has an understanding. Again, it all goes back to the question Steve asked, why me? And this is the setup of his story. He's talking about the German people and how they were feeling weak. They were feeling small and they were inspired by this very showy person, which happened to be uh, Adolf Hitler. Um, and it's interesting how he kind of is relating that to Steve in this whole why me thing about, uh, you know, as we're going to get to that, probably not until tomorrow's minute. But uh, but it's interesting because it is setting up this this sense of the the two sides, you know, and, and you know, we talk about that. I think we talked about it earlier in the film, like the two sides of the same coin, uh, as as Schmidt was talking to the tower keeper about how they're both, you know, these people passionate about science and all this sort of thing. And, but again, here we're setting up these two sides of the same coin because, you know, to a certain extent, I don't think that Erskine really has a sense of how Captain America is going to end up getting used, but he does end up becoming a a figure for the United States, the the citizens to to feel inspired, much like the Germans needed. Uh, and so I, I found that to be kind of an interesting comparison. Um, but one thing that he does say, and I, I wanted to get both of your reads on this, is he talks about Schmidt also being a brilliant scientist. And I, I, my sense of Schmidt up to this point is he's more the, the head of all of this, but not that he's necessarily a scientist. It seems like Zola is his scientist. Did, did either, did that strike either of you as something that was uh, kind of an odd thing? Like he's actually a scientist? It doesn't come across to me. I think I'm picking up on the same thing. It never really came across to me. Like he seems like Schmidt seems more like an opportunist. Like if he sees, like he's smart enough to know who the people are to use and what the opportunities are. But I don't get an impression of him being able to sit alone in a room and tinker together the stuff that he's got Zola doing or that, you know, he had a, he got the formulas, you know, Erskine's formula. He didn't sit in a lab and make all this stuff. So I don't know. I, I, I feel like sometimes you hit things like that. It almost feels like maybe these are, little bits and pieces in a script from a version or a take on a character that didn't quite go the direction they were thinking. Like he's not, I don't, I don't get that impression either that he's quite the scientist on his own. He's, he's a leader and he knows how to take advantage of opportunities. Yeah. I, I think that's true. That, that my headcanon is telling me that he was potentially a scientist, but that the science turned him in a different direction. Mm. You know, that the mad part, kicked in and right. he became just uh you, you know just in sort of acquisition mode right of of acquiring other minds and other tools to to extract power and um so we don't get to see him in his peak sciencing days well if there's if there's an element of him being a scientist i guess it would say he's kind of the research scientist side of things because we always see him he's the one looking through old images and uh, kind of tracking down these things. So if anything, he has kind of the more archaeological side of science, perhaps, maybe not the, the you know, figuring out how to actually use it. But, I mean, he, he is the one who found the Tesseract. So I guess there's that aspect of it, maybe? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, right. I mean, he certainly, he's, he's also part kind of Indiana Jones, right? Like, he's the one globetrotting, and, or I guess he's he's not Indiana Jones, he's the Nazis, but uh, looking for <laughs> looking for artifacts and ways to incorporate them into his 
his efforts. I mean, to be fair, they both steal things from other cultures and take them back to their yeah. own country. <laughs> right. That's right. No, that's right. That's true. So there is that. Yeah. The uh, you know I was I was trying to track down some of the uh, as we see this great montage. Uh, this schmittage, as Pete has decided we should call it, as we're kind of looking through this, and we're, I, I was trying to find some information about like these Teutonic myths and and the things that uh, Schmidt would have been exploring. We see some images here. I couldn't pin. I mean, they're, they're very kind of generic sorts of images and carvings that we have behind him. I wasn't really sure what they were. Uh, Teutonic is very, it's a Germanic paganism is basically what it is. But there is an element of some of that that does also have uh, kind of like we see this image behind him, this carving, it's a ring. Uh, it has the Futhark runic alphabet in it, which we see plenty in Thor. The character in that is actually Odin with his two ravens, uh, human and Munin. Um, it's possible that Odin's wolves are there. I do see there's a four-legged beast on this ring surrounding him. So all of this does kind of tie into those Teutonic myths. Um, I, I was hoping to get a little bit more information, but I do think it's interesting that, again, going back to his uh, kind of some of these other things that we had seen, his uh, recognition of Yggdrasil in, uh, earlier in the film, uh, he really has latched onto all of this being um, you know, the thing that came from Odin's treasure room. So I, I do think it's interesting how they they were really trying to show us this journey of him as he kind of whittled away through the myths and landed on, um, you know, the Tesseract and where it was. I think it's also a great example of, um, I mean, obviously we're deep in at this point. We're, we're quite a ways along in, in the development of everything that's going on with introducing all these characters and thinking about a longer game and a future. But we know that there are a lot of times, particularly earlier on, where they didn't necessarily know or, or have hopes that they'd be going somewhere with a lot of stuff, and they're laying a lot of things in. And I wonder to what extent, and I've never really read much about this, but I wonder to what extent some of this was laid in with thoughts of maybe linking him more to things related to Asgard or Thor, some of those characters that then didn't really pan out. Like they, there are a lot of different ways that could have gone with how he's connected. And I mean, it, it didn't like, and obviously there are also a lot of articles out there where you can read like, here are the 10 things the MCU has never picked back up on again, or things like that. You know, there are a lot of like, um, alleyways that we didn't go down and and i wonder were they throwing all this stuff in thinking well let's link everything together and then we'll see what we use you know and what makes the most sense to connect and it's nice though because it gives you that feeling that you are in a larger universe with a lot of connectivity and that all these things matter and that i think really helped us all to feel like you know we were in a world and not just in individual films so it's, it's a good it's a good way to go yeah, I, I like that they do have that feeling because it does give you the sense like even if we hadn't gone down this road to it, it's kind of like, um, you know, the Spider-Man films like where you meet, um, uh, you know, where his his teacher 
uh, in college is one of the people who potentially would be a villain later in his life. You know, he just right. he, in that particular trilogy, he never became that. But it was kind of fun to see how they were they were setting up potential things that uh, that they had. It's just it's all part of that world building. And so I definitely enjoy that they are doing that. And it would be interesting to see, you know, are there these alleys that they might one day actually come back to explore since it had been set up, you know? Yeah, it's interesting. A couple last things. There was a an extra line that Erskine had in the script uh, talking about Schmidt. He says, he and, Sh- he and Hitler shared a passion for violence and Wagner. German opera is about war and heroes, blood and race, gods afoot upon the earth. Me? I like Benny Goodman. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was a great little line. But it was interesting, and it also sets up uh, you know, the scene that we're going to uh, come into later in the week uh, as far as the Wagner is concerned. Um, and then the last thing I want to say, I just love that, um, you know, now that we're a little closer in on Steve, we can actually see that his SSR shirt actually has little wings on the sleeves. And I thought that was a great little nod to the Captain America uh, helmet in the comics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Any last things from this minute before we wrap things up? I guess I'd just reiterate and I'll, I'll probably be repeating myself as we go forward. It's 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 always fascinating to me to revisit this and see how effortlessly Tucci makes uh, telling backstory look like he's literally just thinking it up as he's talking. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do. He's so conversational and warm. And uh, that's a make or break kind of moment for a scene feeling awkward or not. And, and I think that's this whole scene is really him driving it. Where do you land with his accent? Well, that's the thing. It's kind of silly. But again, I think because it's Stanley Tucci, I'm willing to give him a pass on <laughs> anything related to that because I think he sells it. I think, you know, granted, sometimes you try to do a certain kind of accent like that. It may actually sound like that. And I don't know enough really to be able to say this is very specifically a very good, you know, version of a dialect that just sounds, you know, a little comical. But I think he's so heartfelt and so sincere that he doesn't allow it to become a problem. So I've never had a real issue with that. I've never met a person from Germany who sounds quite like Erskine does in the movie. (laughs) And yet, I'm really okay with that. I'm okay with it. It doesn't take me out of the film. And what fodder for speaking like Erskine in a movie by minute podcast. Well, let's uh, uh, do a ranking of the German accents uh, with you real quick, uh, Arnold, before we uh, head off. Between uh, Stanley Tucci Hugo Weaving and Toby Jones, who would you say is doing it the best and the worst? I would. Well, I think you already know. And I know Toby Jones is Swiss, but yeah, I'm going to say that Stanley Tucci is doing it the best because he just sells the emotional side of it. So he's you love him. So how could you not be fine with the accent? <laughs> um, I think Toby Jones is in the middle, and I think arguably Hugo Weaving is the worst. But then again, I think a lot of that may be also affected by my perception of him, too. (laughs) He sounds like he's a difficult guy to deal with. So my impression is that, you know, he does what he does and that's it. But frankly, I think all three of them, it's 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 a movie that is not only supposed to be kind of creating its own reality, but in a sense doing what like Lucas and Spielberg did years ago with the Raiders movies, which is we're kind of like recreating like old movie serial kind of stuff 
So these aren't real Germans. These aren't real Nazis. They're cartoon movie Nazis, and and even more so, I think, than the Indiana Jones kind of stuff. So, eh, I, I don't I don't worry too much about the accents because that just comes along with the package. They very much um, are doing it in the style of the comics of the time, where the German was written in that kind of like that. Right. The, yeah. The, the comic itself is a dis- is disaster of, of <laughs> phonetic German. <laughs> uh, uh, the dialogue. Oh well, so good, so good. All right, well, uh, let's wrap this minute up. We will come back uh, tomorrow to talk more about this uh, montage and uh, see what happens next. So, uh, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Arnold. And would you like to tell everybody where they can find you and learn more about you and what you're up to? Uh, you can find my publishing company at atbpublishing.com, and you can listen to me and my wife Natalie talk about horror, science fiction, and all sorts of other movies at ghoulsinthehouse.com. That's awesome. <laughs> Ghouls in the house. All right, everybody, check that out. We will we will have the links for it in the show notes. Uh, and uh, Pete, thanks as always. We need a schmittage. <laughs> Until next time, true believers. <laughs> Marvel Movie Minute is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. This season's music is Spread the News by Anthony Vega, and this season's show art is by Winston Yabo. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, consider doing that for this show. <laughs>